0: You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not
1: Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times.
2: Hi, I'm Jess Search. I'm from BritDoc. You might guess we're a British documentary organisation and this session is going to be about uh, documentaries, where it's going in Britain, where it needs to go. It's going to involve all of you because I'm going to be requiring... All of your help for this exercise. I don't mean in this room, I mean in general in life. Um, (laughs) And I've got two um, rather brilliant women to help me with this session. Uh, Zoe Williams, I'm sure you all know, is um, uh, a columnist, a journalist, writer on The Guardian and lots of uh, other places, magazines, etc. She's also just a a rather intelligent, warm and brilliant person. I've known her um, for some time and thank you very much for coming along. (laughs) to. Because I know she watches a lot of docs and thinks about docs and writes about them. Um, at the same time as writing about all other parts of our kind of culture and society, and Molly Dunne, one of the great British auteur documentary filmmakers. When I first started in TV, you know, Molly was. Um, in fact, I, I don't think I told you this. You came to talk at um, Edinburgh TV Twenty Five.
3: I remember it.
2: Yeah, I was in that room. Yeah, I was one of those little moppets who sat there and 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 met mm-hmm. Molly, and you talked about about your work and your process so she was one of the auteur filmmakers that the TV system was creating that we all kind of looked up to and now with what we're doing at BritDoc we're really trying to create a space for people like her to continue making um, films that matter in their own unique individual way so thanks to her for coming to offer her perspective too so I'm going to Just give sort of five minutes of introduction about what BritDoc is and kind of lay the land out um, about where we're going. And then we're going to go to Lie of the Land and then we're going to throw it to Molly. So just give me five minutes to kind of shamelessly uh, promote my world view. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm an ex-Channel 4 commissioning editor in the documentaries department and I left um, eight years ago to start BritDoc... Because along with uh, three other women that we founded the organisation together, we just believe incredibly passionately in the importance of documentary in our culture and society. That actually, you know, we live in a visual age. Film is how people communicate. And actually film, documentary film brings together story and art and journalism and politics. And it enables us to, you know, to think about who we are and examine the world. We're just incredibly passionate about what it has to give and who needs to be involved in documentary. And what we saw was that actually the, the role of television as being the only place that documentary kind of got funded and got seen was sort of becoming way too limiting. And We needed to free documentary for the good of, not just the filmmakers, but for the good of the whole of society. So we're pretty passionate about creating a new space. New models, new funding, new distribution for films that we think really matter. And actually, it was interesting being asked to come here um, by Julia and Peter. Thank you um, for that, for the stage, to talk to, to you all about this. Um, because we really believe in the importance of the of the individual. For us, the individual documentary filmmaker you know, is like the artists, like Maggie, like the writers, like Aminata, People, It's about making space, we feel, for these stubborn and opinionated and insightful filmmakers to actually tell us what we should be thinking about about our world. Sometimes that's really journalistic, sometimes it's much more internal but actually we believe really passionately that we need that. So um, basically over the last uh, eight years we've built up a, a small organisation where about 12 or uh, full-time people. We now give a million pounds out a year to filmmakers to get their films made, get their films distributed and seen. We had four films at Sundance this year, so we're sort of really kind of hitting a, hitting a good moment. Um, we're beginning to put films into the cinema, and we're making partnerships um, globally to connect with other people who believe like we do. So that's me. I'm pretty shamelessly Kind of, you know, an ideologue for what I do. But what I want to know is where you all kind of fit, because I know there are people in this room who already work in documentary. If you've already, if you've been involved in a documentary being made for TV or independently, can you put your hand up if you're already on side? I presume, unless you're like (laughs) never doing that again. I presume. Okay. So basically, my, I'm going to just put it out there. Everyone else who didn't put their hand up. I want you to get involved in documentary and I hope that some of what we're going to talk about during this session is going to persuade you that actually documentary is not something that we, that we do, that Molly and I do, and something that, that Zoe writes about, but actually it, it should involve every part of civil society. It's about, for us, it's about freeing documentary to work with and connect with you know, every part of you know, politics, every part of the creative community, every part of the media to come together and get behind films that matter. And we did that with a film called The End of the Line about overfishing a few years ago. Are people aware of that film? And we did it um, just recently. We're doing it with a film called Ping Pong about um, old people playing ping pong. That was in cinemas last year. And we're working with that film in 2,000 care homes this year to get a new generation of over 70s playing ping pong with local schools. So it manifests in many different ways. But to do projects like that, you need to reach out and you need to make partnerships with corporations, with NGOs, with politicians, with lawyers, you know, with media, so I know who's in this room, and I want you all part of our kind of documentary gang. And that doesn't mean for BritDoc or working with BritDoc; it means working with and for documentary. So, that's that's the agenda. That's where that's where we're going. And I want to know who who has paid to see a cinema documentary in the last six months. I love you. Okay, you're, you're great, and. Um, who has watched a feature documentary in some other way other than cinema? Who hasn't like you, you watched it on okay, good, good. Excellent. That's great. Okay, who hasn't?
0: <laughs> that's a brave man over there.
2: He's not looking I think he's still got his hand up from before. Did, yes, did, it, it, did he's you have hand up
3: all the way? Oh through. okay,
2: sorry. You, is that Are you are you Ravi? Is that what your name was? Did I mean you know, you sir. Yeah, okay. You still had your hand up. You were about to be hated by, well, certainly me, but possibly <laughs> others. Because I said, who has not seen a feature doc in the last six months? And you were, you were still like that. And everyone was like, ooh, brave man. Okay, okay no, he's good, he's good, he's good. <laughs> so no, no, one, no one's going to admit to it after I've said that now. So it's like, a, for the scientists in the room, they're like, you've just totally blown your study. You're like, yeah, who's brave enough to be hated and put their hand up for my survey? So they haven't, no, okay, it doesn't work. Okay. Okay. Um, but, yeah, well, thank you um, for being involved as you are, and let's, um, and let's kind of get, get into it a because documentary um, is important, and it's also changing. So, Molly, did you know that you, were my, that you were one of my inspirations when I was a Moppet coming into TV?
3: No, I didn't. <laughs> um, but I was, the, I was very interested in what you told me about the change in television, because I've always made documentaries... For telly. I've never done one for cinema. I'd love to, but I haven't. And I'm also thrilled at the idea of television because of the fact that the film comes into your domestic space. You have to make no effort. It just is there. And there's more of a chance, which for me is the sort of the um, inspiration to make, and there's more of a chance that people who don't give a damn about that topic will stumble over it and think, oh, okay, and then start watching it, which just makes it... Um, and it means you're not preaching to the converted because the only sad thing about television slightly wiping its hands of documentaries or going into factual entertainment is the fact that um, it's no longer coming into people's houses people will choose to go and see a film they already know they want to see so um jess tells me that the film i was going to show a clip of which is called the Life of the land which went out on channel four in 2007 yeah. Um, Probably wouldn't get commissioned anymore because at that time there was still a big separation between commissioning and advertising or sales. And the problem with my film was it was very bad for food advertisers because it was a direct hit or my my discovery about something happening in the food industry. So the film was ostensibly about the hunting ban but really ended up being very much about what happens in meat production. And what, tell, yeah. say what you said to me, in fact, that the change that had happened since then.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I left Channel 4 quite a long time ago. But what, what was happening when I was there was, in a way, man, probably doesn't come as a surprise to many people in the room because it reflects you know, lots of kind of global global trends in media but there used to be a firewall between editorial and sales so you know the commissioning editors would would decide you know what to put on the channel you know for all the reasons that they're thinking about and then ad sales team would go off and figure out how they're going to fulfill you know the right number of 18 to 24 you know whatever for the different um, advertisers and it was very much a kind of separated a separated thing and after I'd left the channel we'd already started BritDoc I was chatting one day on the stairs of Channel 4 on the way in for a meeting with the then head of ad sales. And, uh, and I was explaining to him what we were doing. And I was saying, if you work with feature docs like Super Size Me, you know, you can have much more social effect. Because you can have it at the cinema, than then on to, oh, he said, Super Size Me, yeah, we showed that. Of course, we wouldn't show that now. We took a big hit on that from McDonald's. <laughs> and he said it sort of without any, you know, sense that that was a... A significant, you know, that was a, that was a kind of a, a thing of significance, and it was just sort of that that moment when you realise that this is what the modern media has to do. It has to kind of lock its commercial and editorial together in a way that actually, you know, is really is really problematic if you believe in a truly independent media that takes on and has a poke at as a poke people.
3: But then actually, what about Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and Jamie Oliver, both of whom have conducted TV campaigns? Hanging on, factual. Yeah. Um, Partly in partnership with Sainsbury's. But, well, again, yeah.
0: it's, always, it's, it's very, um, it's very. I always feel that they're somewhat compromised. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I, I think it's just an impossible position to say. You know, I'm really against factory farming, but I will be the face of Sainsbury's. Yeah. Yeah. They never. They never. You never get that. You never get a sense of that from them that they see any kind of weirdness yeah. in the position. Um, and I've interviewed Jamie Oliver a few times I'm always, you, you always kind of ask don't you see any kind of conflict of interest and he's like no, no mate, no
4: but Have you seen <laughs> that line crossed
2: yet in newspapers where effectively the head of ad sales might say oh dear put that on the front page we well, don't think so
0: It's very much, it's really interesting actually with, with the printed, with printed media that it filters through from beauty right? so at one end is beauty and the other end is news news if they even saw an advert, or if anybody mentioned the advert opposite their news, they would faint. Somebody would have to yeah. revive them with lavender. Um, and beauty—if you say any—if you write about beauty, if you say anything at all that isn't what a wonderful product it is—you're on. You're blacklisted immediately. So there is a spectrum in. But
2: where's the line, and is the line moving?
0: Is it creeping up? I mean, I think, th- I think it's not really creeping up. I think, I think um, newspapers do have a really strong sense of, of where, what would compromise them and what wouldn't, but I think it's partly that sense which is dooming them to, mm. to obsolescence. <laughs> I mean, I think it's partly that, 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 you know, that they won't allow for any permeability, that they can't kind of find another business model. Yeah.
2: And with, um, Do you want to talk more about Lie in the Land and how that came about, your, your journey of discovering what the film was about and it actually ending up being this kind of
3: quite big piece on wither yeah i um i normally don't make such issue driven films they're very much based in character because you you have to entertain people nobody has to watch they can turn over so i try and hang issues on character um and i've always been interested in watching the same thing changing british institutions and the next big change was in farming i mean in fox hunting sorry which was a very interesting British infrastructure. It underpins the entire countryside. And I've been filming bits and pieces of these countryside marches for a long time. And Peter Dale at Channel 4 did what is exactly what I think people mm. who work in documentaries and teles should do, which is pursue the story themselves. He phoned me up and said, I know you've got this footage. I know you want to do this film. Please now go and make it. And we'll support you and we will fund you. And... Um, I really appreciated that, because I think that's often how things get off the ground. But I started making this film with an amateur hunt, this man who's down in Cornwall. I had to go (coughs) miles away to get away. People are very odd filming now, because there's so much reality television, that often when you're filming around London, you get a certain sort of performance. And I'd gone to the Lizards to film this bloke. And I was stumbling around after him, not quite knowing what the film was going to be, but I liked him as a character, so I'd cast it. And then he um, started doing something that I was so shocked by that I thought that I ought to abandon that and probably go and find a character who could explain to the audience what they were doing and why. Um, And I was just thinking in terms of clips. I'd Mm. like to show the first clip. I was following him round, just on his flesh run, and when he opened the door and I went in... I'm not suggesting it's a big deal, I'm just saying I was quite shocked as I was filming it. And then thought the film had to change direction because, as I say, I wanted it within the documentary. I think if you're um, putting something out on television, you've got to explain what the hell's going on. And I try not to use commentary if I possibly can. I like to get it out of characters because then people are responding more because they like watching people. So. Well, actually, I, I want to say something. You mentioned Peter Dale, who was my boss at Channel
2: 4. Channel 4, by the way, are um, founding um, partners of, of BritDoc, so we still work really closely with them. Um, but yeah, Peter Dale once said to me, what, what is a documentary? What makes a documentary a documentary and not factual entertainment and not just kind of factual programming? And um, it was a bit like being in a kind of philosophy tutorial. I didn't know what the answer was and sort of fumbled through some stuff. And he said, hmm... For me, it's, does it ask a moral question? Does it ask, in some way, is it asking us to consider how we should live? If it's just telling us facts, or if it's just entertaining us, then it might be using kind of the traits of documentary, but it's not a documentary in the way that, in the way that you know, we, you mean kind of we mean it? Mm. And um, I like that. That really, that really stuck with me kind of over the years,
3: and certainly true of, um, of the film you made here, you know, mm.
2: That particular well, but scene. I think
3: that the point was, is that I, I, and I think that is exactly what television should be doing. It should be trying to help people go out and come back with stories about things that are happening. And I hate the fact, I love the fact that you run Bridget. I don't like the fact that it means telly can say, well, actually, we don't deal with documentaries. That's become cinematic, which actually then creates other pressures because the how they have to be to be in the cinema. Um, television, meanwhile, makes things like Made in Chelsea and... The only way is Essex and calls it documentary, or Wife Swap and calls it documentary, which makes me very angry because I think that people actually, it's almost a democratic right that we should have a chance to understand what the hell's going on, and lots of different subjective points of view. That is just my tip, sorry, my take on what was happening there, but it was a genuine discovery for me. And I really appreciate the fact that I was paid to find out about it and deliver it, and Mm. then it got a very satisfactory editorial response from journalists, which is a communication Mm. I love. And so you feel, just like your wonderful documentaries that become campaigning films, that you're beginning to build a dialogue. Mm. And I think that's just a very important area. And I think that increasingly, an awful lot of true stories are now... well, fiction. Is messing about in the sort of terrain that should be current affairs, documentaries, and news, such as Zero Dark Thirty, things like that. Let's get onto that when we get onto that. But I yeah. want to throw this to Zoe. Wait, um, at her. Yeah. It's a, sorry, I was just explaining <laughs> why showing chair. those, yeah. which I didn't <laughs> set
2: up very well. But, um, see, yeah. I, I would contend, because I'm, I'm an ideologue, that mm. um, documentary can connect us to that in a way that other medium can't. I mean, you could maybe make a fiction scene out of that, but I'm not quite sure how that would sit. But obviously people address these issues in journalism, they address them in writing, they address them in novels. But for me, that is powerful and communicates to you your head and your heart at the same moment in a really different way. Am I belittling or not understanding the the, the world of the word when I say that?
0: No, I don't think so. I mean, one of the annoying things, one of the many things I don't like about being a print journalist is that we're not allowed to have a process. We just have a thing that we have to do in half an hour and then and then it's done, and it is often deficient in some way, and I think, I mean, we can move on to this on the riots, on the kind of, that in context and what Mm. different media can do for it and show about it, but I do think the kind of speed of response of print journalism does sometimes undermine how seriously people take it and kind of rightly so, you know. The thing I think is that you can present people, you can present characters in, you can kind of bend them to your story in two ways, right? One is the choice of the way you quote them and the other one is the is the stuff you say around it. So I
2: think Te- technical terms there from sorry. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. I'm That's what George Orwell would have said. <laughs> the stuff you say around it. But and I think as a result of that, people are much more people respond in a much more kind of human way to when they can see the person, they can hear them speaking and they can get a real sense of them, which they you know, are the most perfect journalist on earth cannot help but interpolate themselves between the subject and you. And even though the same thing is happening with a documentary maker, it's not happening in the same way, Mm. and it's not happening in a visible way. And I really... Mm. and Actually, The Guardian, in a desperate attempt to cling on to readers, we're starting to embed video at the moment. And there was this one video where the... It was, a kind of, it was about housing. It was a really worthy Guardian-style piece about ha- poor housing conditions. But the, but the baby in one of the films, really short little films, about a woman with a mould on her um, wall, the baby died about three months later. And it was a respiratory illness. And, you know, there are hmm. certainly people who think that baby died because of the conditions she was living in. But, you know, that's not, that's not the first time anybody's read that story, for sure, <laughs> whether it was in Hackney or in... Somalia or anywhere else, but there were people. There were certainly people in the newsroom crying about it because they could remember they could see the baby, Mm. you know, and that that says something really important when, you know, even the people writing the story take the film more seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: Yeah. Although it's a good symbiotic relationship, isn't it, as you were saying, Molly? Because you make a great film, and what you want then is press to pick it up and amplify it in different ways. and also yeah. and also these days people can watch things on catch up so because lie of the Lamb went out before you know four o d so you get that nice thing now where you know you make a you know you make a film, people read about it, and then they go back
3: and find the film mm. can, so. Yeah, so there's nothing like lots of people watching something at the same time because of the discussion and because I'm very, very old, I do think that when there were four channels and your film went out and you could sit on buses or be in pubs and hear it, it's not just even a question of ego. You just think, well, I have, I've made people think, you know, that there was such a wonderful focus on what you were doing, and that's what I still find exciting about telly, live telly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Molly, if, if oh, I could make it so there was only one channel... <laughs>
3: yeah. and, 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 I, it only I, and it Brit only showed Brit yeah. films, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah I, would, sure. I would do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alas, sadly, I think that... That world is not coming back. Um, I want to move on to... Can yep. we? Yeah, should we move on um, to One Mile Away? Have people caught any of the press that's just been coming out over this? It was um, in the Financial Times on Friday in The Observer uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the subjects of this film were on uh, Radio 4 on Saturday morning. It's about two gangs in Birmingham who started a truce with each other. People heard about people are nodding. That's great. This is a really great story, and I wish Penny Woolcock, the director, was here to tell it herself because it's so brilliant. She made a, fi- a, a drama film in Birmingham and got to know um, some local people from both sides of the two major gangs of Birmingham, which are the Burgers and the Johnsons, who've been in conflict with each other for 20 years, and they divide the city between them by postcodes and can't move into each other's territory. It's an instant stabbing or shooting offence to be found in the territory of the other gang. So vast amounts of violence and stabbings and deaths in Birmingham over 20 years caused by, by this rift. And Penny had left done her film, gone back to London, and she got a phone call from one of the guys on one side saying, listen, I want to try and end this madness and start a truce i want to reach out to someone i want you to help me reach out to someone on the other side because you know people on both sides and you're the only person in birmingham that we can trust to be an intermediary because you're an outsider and you're not police will you come to birmingham and help to negotiate uh, a peace truce and will you film it because we think if you don't film it it won't stick and she then spent the next kind of two years of her life making this film and charting this process uh, has to be said inordinate personal risk, which she would not mention if she was here, but she had a lot of death threats, and there were periods where she had to come back to london and couldn 't be in Birmingham because sort of stuff was really crazy. but they did um, ult- ultimately do it, and it 's a fantastic example of a kind of community up. Project Where, for all the money that 's spent to try and calm gang violence in Birmingham, at the end, it was these two guys from the community themselves, which actually is not a very popular message with all of the police there who don 't want to believe that anything good can come out of these gangsters, and actually, they have changed their own lives um, and in this spirit of connection and what I was saying earlier about why I need everyone in this room. Penny came and presented the film at an event we call, have called a Good Pitch, where people say, I'm making this film, and these are the people that I'm going to need to help me reach my goals. I'm going to need people who can get this film in front of politicians. I'm going to need people who know about, you know, who can connect me to barristers. I'm going to need people. And uh, she met in the lunch queue, she met James Pennell, the um, ex-Cabinet um, Minister, Labour Cabinet Minister, and he became the producer uh, of the film from that, from that chance meeting at an event much like this. In fact, our Good Pitch event is, you know, Um, very much in in the spirit of Names Not Numbers, you know, they met and they got on. And the clip I'm going to show you, um, well, it speaks for itself, but it's James um, taking the guys uh, from Birmingham to London to learn what what they can from how the Northern Ireland peace process played out, what they can take from that learning back to their community in Birmingham to help them with their truce. What's interesting about this film, which will be shown on Channel 4, they did, um, they did help fund the film. Penny had to find the uh, initial money to get the project rolling herself, much like Maggie um, talking about her sculpture. You know, she made a commitment to make the film. She'd given the guys her word and she, they got some money together from some foundations. Um, and we gave them a very small um, development grant. And then Channel 4 did come in and it'd be shown on Channel 4 at 11.30 um, on April the 29th, I think.
3: What's the reason for 11:30 at night? We well, see.
2: I actually think you know
3: adult themes. I actually think
2: that's a result. I mean, I'm, I'm more I'm more I'm more realistic and perhaps resigned to where mm. television is and why it's there. I, mean, I actually think 11:30 at, at night is actually is actually a, a very good result. But my what I, what I want to say with this film is that actually the Channel 4 screening is the least important thing this film will do. And for me, this is the new model kind of, of documentary mm-hmm. uh, in the world. Because you look at a film like this, which describes you know, this really uh, important process, and you think, who needs to see this film? Who should see this film? And then you design a, uh, you know, you design a process around how do you reach those particular people? So, in fact... Um, Tonight, while we're all all here in Albury, we're all missing the BAFTA premiere of this um, film—an influencer screening at BAFTA, where you know barristers and police and council leaders and have been invited to come and see the film and meet the guys and kind of hear their story as we kind of begin to kick off a process of actually making sure this film can do its job in communicating to the communities who rule their lives, you know, in Birmingham, that actually this is a community. Uh, who need to be respected and who actually can fix their own problems if they 're kind of given trust and space and simultaneously of course you 'd want this film seen by by inner city youth who are dealing with these issues of gang. Um, of gang violence and the guys from the film that you saw around that table are now all involved in a social I mean li- literally nine months ago not Dylan actually I'm on the left but um, most of the guys who were involved in the social enterprise were you know, making their living extremely illegally only nine months ago and are now all working in this social enterprise they've started themselves to go into schools and talk to young people about not making the life choices that they made so our pattern for releasing the film we're releasing the film ourselves it's going to be in cinemas for people like everyone who put their hand up, people like you, um, you can go and see that film in the cinema um, from, I think, next Friday. But obviously, the, the audience that really needs to see the film, the inner City Youth audience, are not going to pay to go to a cinema, and we know that. So we have raised money from a foundation, and we have a campaign on Kickstarter, which... Um, if you find out more about it and you'd like to get involved you can actually um, help to support we get 20000 from a foundation, we're raising 20000 from from people who like the idea of what's going on and we're pirating the film ourselves so we're giving the film to street vendors in, in inner cities, in Birmingham and Manchester to sell that film cheaply on the street for a pound, 2 £2 in pubs and bars so it gets into the hands of people who need to see the film and we're also putting it up on Pirate Bay and Pirate Bay and the other um, pirate sites are going to actively promote the film um, so that more uh, kind of young people coming to their sites to kind of do what they do there will actually take a free copy of one mile away. And we're working with schools, taking the film um, and the and the project into schools and we're also working with prisons to get the film shown into into prisons. And so again it comes down to how do you define, you know, how do you define success? You know, will the day after the films on Channel 4 the nation be talking about it? No. Um, will it ever reach um, as big an audience as the lie in totality as the lie of the land? Possibly not. But will it do something completely, you know, extraordinary and transformative through the help of lots of different parts of society who are going to kind of come together to make this possible prison reform organisations? You know, we've got barristers helping us. Um, We're working with, you know, schools, charities, film club, you know. So for me, this is what the new picture of really exciting success looks like. Who thinks that's exciting? Are you with me? It's really exciting, though. I saw
0: somebody over there who didn't.
2: Okay, who doesn't think it's exciting? Was it, was it Ravi again? No, oh, he's not in. He's, on, he's in. Yeah, he's in. Um, so, sorry, yeah. oh, is, sorry, is documentary going to replace print medium for journalism?
0: Um, well... Yeah, it could. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about the other reason I think it's so effective is because you do have this kind of—you do spend a lot of time in the company of the characters you create. So, however much of a creation it is, how much of a fabrication it is, or a fictionalization, you still get—you still you still feel—and I think this is the reason it often has more impact politically and socially. You feel like the person, like a kind of more of a sense of belonging with the person, and you feel like you know the person better. And it's much more difficult to make judgments about people when you know them at that kind of length. Yeah. Whereas, if you you know, you could read an article yeah. about those people and probably, depending on how the article was written, it might even be written sympathetically, but you could still form a negative judgment just having not, having not bought the premise of the article. Whereas I think if you just spend a bit more time with them, then you wouldn't. I think that the, if documentary did take over print journalism, I think something that we should really guard against is kind of believing it to be true because we are used to... A, a kind of certain standard of impartiality from um, documentary, and B, a kind of sense that they're not polemical, they just give you the facts, and you make up your own mind. And I think that very often documentaries are polemical, um, but they don't, they're not really as upfront about how polemical they're being. Am I allowed to talk about Gaslands? Yeah. OK, because we came to blows about this earlier, so <laughs> I'm hoping to re- reignite that fight for all of you. Um, basically, I'm just thinking specifically Who, about Who's gas seen lines? it? Who's, who's gas seen Gaslands? Who's seen Gaslands? One person. <laughs> right. See me
2: after.
5: Two people. Find a beer. So
2: Excellent. It's um
0: it's a film about um fracking and um unabated and shale gas and basically how it's destroyed huge swaths of America and how people are turning their taps on and gas comes out of them and you can set lights to it. So it's quite shocking. But what was what's interesting is that um it's had a really huge impact on poli- on public policy, not in America, because they you know, they're quite they're not great at kind of joined up energy policy but actually in Europe so in France there's a moratorium when even prospecting for shale gas and I think in Holland you're allowed to prospect but you're not allowed to do any hydraulic fracturing so that you, you could prospect all you like but you wouldn't be allowed to actually find it once you would prospected it which would be so frustrating only the Dutch could deal with it um, anyway the, the, the film is very the film is wrong and we, we this is what we had an argument about but um, geologists <laughs> geologists insist that, it, that
2: it's She pulled rank, well. she was like, oh yeah, my, my, well, my yeah. partner's a geologist. Exactly, so yeah.
0: I, I kind of pulled rank and then just found a geologist, just found her own geologist and said, no, look, this geologist disagrees. So let's say that ge- within the geology community, the ground is contested, but besides parking that, because no, we can't adjudicate between loads of geologists who we don't know, apart from my partner who I do know, um, there's a... Basically, there's a very specific situation in America which is why their landscape is destroyed, and that is that if you find energy on your own property, you get the money. Whereas all our energy, all ours is owned by the crown, all France's is owned by the people, by which they mean parliament, or I don't know what the situation is in the Netherlands, but only in America do you get the energy that you drill down and and, and find. But as a result, if you think there's unabated gas in your, on your land, you'll drill a 1,000 wells to find it. Because if the guy next door finds it and then goes underneath, you don't get that money. So it's destroyed. what's destroyed the landscape is not the gas itself, but the, the process of finding the gas. And... In if you know if we had, I mean, I, I I'm against. This is that's, that's my next point. But, but anyway, in England, how you do it is have one one well and then drill down and you get all the, all the gas from the whole
2: area, so it wouldn't destroy the landscape. But then you should make a pro fracking um, documentary. Well, no, well, no, I, I, well, no but I,
0: this is it. Is that I'm actually not pro fracking because I'm against, I'm 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 against <laughs> using gas. Yeah. So I look at this documentary and I think, great, you've really altered the public terrain with information that is somewhat misleading. <laughs> so I think you know Contested. Uh, and some of it quite misleading. But the film um, But
2: the film agrees it's contested because he says the whatever it is, the, the body see over us say that um, this has not been caused by fracking. Oh yeah, but I mean it, it's so got, he,
0: it agrees there's scientific contestation, but it so doesn't agree that they're actually the situation in America the would anyone, not isn't? be rolled out to the rest of Europe. Yeah. But to to Europe. But the the point being you know, in journalism, we've always done this. We've always pursued our own agendas and focused on things that we know that aren't the, com- the complete story. And that's people accept that from print, but people don't expect that from
2: documentary. I still think... It's worth the... I mean, yes, there's a, of course there's a risk if individuals... I mean, I want to unleash the individuals to go and make films. And there's a danger, isn't there, Molly? If you unleash the individuals, and some of them are going to make journalistic kind of mistakes. When the New York Times is fa- you know, famous for kind of double, triple checking every single thing that goes in, and if you make any mistake, they have to publish a thing saying it was a mistake. And, and obviously, Josh, you made Gasland, is not held to that same standard, which you know, is certainly kind of a danger. But for me... The, the public good of unleashing the Josh, Josh Foxes. And in a David and Goliath situation, like, you know, yeah. one filmmaker versus the American energy, you know, um, sort of industry is saying, actually, hang on a minute, some geologists think that actually this fracking is causing gas to come out of this tap. That seems to me that's a good thing. But then I think but what you
0: find then is that then they made this film about wind farms, which, which did a gas lands on wind farms, um, And and that, I can't remember what it was called, and as I was making notes, I was thinking, I'm just going to make up a name, and then I thought that would look really, really bad. But the name I made up was Wind Wars. Um, We're in Wind Wars. Again, there's a lot of contested ground, and that ground is... And here I do feel really aggrieved about it because I'm really pro-renewables and it's like somebody's going to put a lot of money behind discrediting them and that's going to be problematic for policy going in the long term. But this is Fox Newsification, isn't it? You just flood the territory with loads of information and nobody
2: knows what's true and what isn't. Yeah. And it's
0: great because loads of individuals are talking but it would be good to have kind of
3: some standards of public
2: trust. Yeah, no, I agree you look at me so sceptically.
3: No, I was just thinking about how anxious I was when Lie of the Land went out, because um, it had taken ages to make, and suddenly they stopped shooting calves. And I thought, oh, no. Because then, actually, um, I couldn't, because I kept phoning the huntsman, saying, when are you going to start shooting? He said, no, no, the economics have changed. We're getting more money now for the calves. And I was actually thinking, oh, shit, I can't put it out then. Yeah. So, that you know, truth is inconvenient and expensive in documentaries, because... Yeah. Which is presumably why it's now shifted an awful lot of, as I said, the um, stories that should be the domain of documentaries have moved into fiction. Because then you really are yeah. saying, well, this is my take, so yeah. we'll just yeah. we'll pretend that this one woman drove the hunt for bin Laden. I'm obsessed by this. <laughs> course. Because I've also seen the documentary about the hunt for bin Laden, which is completely different to the fiction. Has anyone seen Zero Dark Thirty? Do you assume it's the true story or do you think I'm watching a fiction film based on truth? It's a very odd area to get into because actually people will end up thinking that's more or less what happened. And it's wildly inaccurate. Yeah, it really annoys <laughs> the whole thing really annoys Molly and, Molly and I. We, well we, I just know I think it's just we're getting into a very, very muddy area where a lot of documentaries are looking like fiction. A lot of fiction films are shot like documentary and wobbly mm. and exciting and as if it's all been grabbed. They're using the language of mm. documentary. The news has got backing tracks like a disco and is very fast cut. And I just think in the end there's a it's getting very confusing knowing actually what has gone on mm. and it's getting to the point that I think it should certainly be taught in a very sophisticated way in schools as to how interpret what you're being told and what you're looking at and just basically you've as long as you're sure I mean hence with the the Gaslands film that, I, I, I mean, he obviously, he's arguing that passionately, so it's very worrying that it's completely untrue. It's not completely untrue. <laughs> but then there's another, there's another wonderful the documentary show. maker called Adam Curtis. I don't know if you know his stuff. BBC Two, it's very thesis-driven. He writes them. But that's very much Adam's take, Adam's research, supported by archive footage. They're magnificent films. But somebody else will then come out and say, but actually, you're wrong. There is such a thing as Al-Qaeda, because he made a series that said, this is really a fantasy, and it's been created by politicians. To frighten us. Mm, yeah. So I don't know what you conclude by all that, which is documentaries are as untrue as anything else, I suppose. <laughs> no. It, it's, it's yeah. just that. No. I think that um, and I'm not I would never argue for telling Because documenti- documentaries
2: must respect the truth and accuracy, and if they don't, they should be brought to, to book well, for it. Well respect
3: it, but you don't necessarily have to tell it because they the be. But they, it, no, but they should, be, but they should
2: no. be brought to book for it. It wasn't about fictions, they say, Oh, you can't bring us to book for it 'cause we're not we didn't say it was and then that's annoying because you said it's a true story, but then and you won't. worry.
1: Yes. Mm. You wanted wanted to... Surely everything is... I mean, there is no such thing as objective truth in print journalism, digital journalism, documentary, non-fiction. I mean, anything is only... Degrees of. Degrees of, expressed through the filter of the cultural... (laughs) prejudices you have built up over your well, facts lifetime. facts you state
2: should be true, the, the and fact, if you have, the have fact, willingly not presented yes, facts which you yes, know contradict the that do, is bad, I do agree every with documentary should be held.
1: Well, I, well y- facts, yes, but you, you know, you can argue to some extent about those, actually, but I mean, you know, that's a whole other area, but, but I just think we need to be a bit clearer that everything that is called non-fiction or documentary or whatever else it is, is filtered through a particular person's... Absolutely. And, and, you know, what you bring to that is the critical thinking you bring to Mm, anything, mm, if you are mm. a sentient creature with a brain, which is that, you know, you you look at it, you think, does this have the ring of truth? Do the facts add up? You know, we are not just passive receptacles who instantly accept every Fox News story that is fed down our throats. If we are, that's pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. Um, The other point I did want to raise, which was when you (laughs) talked... CNN hand went up straight away (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you you talked about advertising and print, let us remember the newspapers are not charities. The Guardian, as it happens, is funded by the Scott Trust. Most newspapers are funded by billionaires, oligarchs, very, very rich people who are not, by the way, necessarily the nicest people in the whole world. It is not a charity. These things run on advertising and vanity projects of very rich people. So I don't think we should get do you, too Do do you think a democracy having... needs
2: certain stories to be brought forward, Absolutely, but or people Yeah, but if people... Yeah, but if people
1: sorry, I'm, I'm, yeah. Sarah's just told me I've got to say that I'm a very angry Christina, Christina Patterson from The Independent, which has particular funding challenges at the moment, I think we can say. Yeah. Um, Yes, of course, but th- we are talking about the demise of professional journalism here. And, you know, if people want that, they have to pay for it. At the moment, the evidence isn't adding up that they do. So I just, I just was slightly bristling at the, uh, it seemed to me, slight snobbery about advertising next to news News pieces. I do
2: any snobbery no, about that. It's no, when, I, I do, you, mean, do you think there's something wrong with the head of sales at Channel 4 saying oh, we wouldn't show supersized me now because we wouldn't want McDonald's to take away the advertising? Is that okay, then?
1: Well, I think that if they're going to have to fire all their documentary makers because they haven't got the revenue to, to pay their salaries, well, that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking. It specifically is specifically about that instance. Well, I, I don't know enough about that instance. No, no, I'm, no, I'm not saying going
2: hypothetically. To, yes. Should the head of sales at a major public service broadcaster be able to say that a famous anti-corporate film shouldn't be shown by the editorial because it would be because they'd lose that advertiser's support? It's an, it, it's, I'm, not, I don't,
1: I'm not going well. to pass a comment on that because I don't know enough about the funding situation. In theory, no, they shouldn't. But all of these things are complex operations in which you balance your revenue, your advertising and totally. the salaries Totally, that's what we do at BrickDoc. That's yeah, exactly the
2: challenge that we took on. We said... How do we get these documentaries funded and to the audiences you know, that are relevant and that, can, and that need to see them for the functioning? And How do we take that challenge on, given everything that you are saying? Well, well, no, all I can, totally agree I tell with you. What,
0: what I think is really interesting is that you were saying that you, make your own, you bring your own critical decision to the table whenever you watch or hear anything. But actually, when you, when you do bring your critical decision to the table and you notice that somebody's sponsoring something or it's very obviously paid for by somebody who's trying to sell you something, Most people find that that really, really diminishes their credence. Um, Now, what that means... I mean, I think think it's right that it should diminish your credence. I think if you're watching something that's been funded by a company who hopes to make money out of a particular point of view, then their presentation is going to be different. But I don't think it's all, you know, much of a muchness. Newspapers wouldn't exist without oligarchs, ergo, everybody's in the pay of the... Of everybody's on their knees to man on. I think there are, you know, important distinctions to be made.
1: Well, I think there are things like. Well, I will stop because we'll go on all afternoon. But I think, you know, th- things like the BBC. Obviously, that is essentially tax-funded, so that's in a very, very luxurious position, and you're not going to get, you know, very offensive ads for whatever next to to something. But I think the rest of the the rest of the picture is quite complex, okay. and I think we have to bear in who mind the actual. Who wants to
2: go next? Thank, thank you, thank you. Who wants to who wants to go next? <laughs>
5: Uh, perhaps, uh, are, you,
2: are you two together, though?
3: Uh, no, well...
5: Because, you know, only, there's a whole Only in the sense of juxtaposition. Are you Are you going to disagree with her? Uh, no, I'm going to ask a different question. Okay. Uh, if that's... <laughs> I'm not think, gonna...
2: did anyone want to respond, though, to, to, the, to those particular questions? Well, can, 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 can I just...
5: To... I'm, to, I'm not going to totally shift the ground I just want to say, because I want to go back to, to what this started with, which is the question of the difference between um, print journalism and visual documentary and the position that I understood um, some of you to be taking that, that there is, um, that, that somehow and this is what we were both starting to get uh, um, to, to be questioning and I would just put it slightly differently and ask it in a different way, which is to say that these are, no but this is important, don't, don't laugh um, No, so the, you guys <laughs> had the mic for ages and behind the, you, you but can't I, see, there were like a people who are waiting for the mic. I just happen to be sitting next to her. <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway, um, I'm happy to, to concede the mic to somebody else. I'm just not sure why it's objectionable that I happen to be sitting next to her, but that's okay. no, 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 no. Be, please, no.
2: you're, you're ah. in that far. Go
5: through. Well, well the... the the question was about authorship, and the question is why why we why we seem to be positing, and it's not aggressive. I'm, I'm curious why we seem to be positing that a visual nonfiction narrative that that an audience presumes that a visual nonfiction narrative is less authored than a print nonfiction narrative, and it goes back to Zoe's point that you just made a second ago about the sophistication of the presentation of that. I was thinking when you were talking about documentaries about Dinesh D'Souza's Obama 2016 documentary, which is an unbelievable you know, propagandistic and therefore yeah. unbelievably, uh, um, uh, you know, skeptic-inducing. Yeah. If yeah. that's yeah. You, know, you know what I mean, um, it has ab- it had no credibility except for the people who already wanted to believe it, yeah, which is yeah, a yeah. you know which is another problem. So I, get, I just was wanting to take issue with the notion that there, that seemed to be developing that sound documentary film is objective in a way that that writers of print uh, uh, are not, and that's oh, to say that it's say all that's. That but that seemed I, to I really be where this was
3: went going. I about being very subjective. Yeah, very, very, very. Let's take
5: some more. Let's take some more views because
2: everyone wants to speak so let's 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 hear from the room a bit and then we can synthesize
3: okay,
0: okay yeah can I, can I just ask a quick question the idea of a documentary is having a social good asking a moral, no, question. Yes, moral some question some of the great documentaries don't do that they just tell beautiful stories for Which instance no, man on no. wire yeah, yeah what yeah. is the moral question in man on wire yeah.
2: I, oh my God! Man and Wire—the bit where he comes down <laughs> off the tower and he's arrested, and the journalist is saying to him, "Why did you do it? Why?" And he turns and he says, "You ask me why? Like you don't understand what is beauty in That's the world." A, that to
0: me is not a moral question. To me, the wow. question—the the central driver of that film—is characters and a beautiful thing about it—a a story about how obsession. we live.
2: What are our values? For me, I mean, I mean, I think maybe I think. I think I think I think maybe you think I mean moral in a very very narrow way I mean mean moral in the kind of like what are our values in society and he says I've given your city this act of unspeakable beauty and you asked me why I did it yeah. Like we're not, we're not speaking in the same set of societal values. So for me, that for me that is embraced within a moral That's question. That, yeah, that,
0: there is an important distinction, though, isn't it, between crusading, a kind of social crusade, and a moral and a kind yeah. of moral universe.
2: Okay, great. Oh. Oh, okay. wow! I feel the, the like people, I've got an A. Keep, keep, keep yeah, let's, yeah, let's. let's have can we get the mic here. down here? Because this guy's been desperate to speak for ages. Whoever's got the mic and's ready to go, go. Oh,
6: Well, I'm Kate Maltby, by the way. Um, I'm glad we can now agree, maybe, that all documentaries are, in fact, authored and shaped, and that's okay. But I was fascinated um, that the people in One Mile Away, I think it's called, had come to you and asked to be the subject of a documentary. And they had political, personal reasons for doing that. But generally, are you finding now that there are documentaries that are led by the subject oh, more than in the past. I mean, yeah. Molly spoke brilliantly yesterday about being asked to do a political party broadcast, which is in some ways very difficult, different, sorry, from the hunt where you pursued very much totally something different. that came, came yeah. from you. I was also waiting for the pitch from Jess, um, ever since I saw the crowdfunding thing. Yeah. Um, were, are you still crowdfunding? Yes. Don't, don't you want to ask us for money? Can I, I give you some? You I'd money, love yeah. to. <laughs> if you like the sound um, of One Mile
2: Away, please join our Kickstarter campaign.
6: And um, did that, that sense of crowdfunding change the sense of authorship and ownership as well? This is on the, the campaign to get
2: the film into, into prisons and schools and inner cities, so it's not on the making of the film. Okay. But, but crowdfunding is great, yeah. And, and will be a really important i mean i think you know, for journalism as well crowdfunding is going to become more important for investigative you know like big pieces of investigative mm. work where people actually chip in yeah you know, that's already happening. hundreds it's of people chip facts. in to actually create full Fact is crowdfunded who's the mic I've who's got, there i've, yeah. I've,
4: there I've got the mic i've got the mic here no
0: i think you oh no okay
4: <laughs> 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 okay look my name's rick stroud and i have made documentary films and dramas I just wonder where, what the role of the BBC is at the moment, because it's not constrained by advertising. It's a, it's a public. It is a pure public service broadcaster. It's entitled to make to set standards in the world, and if necessary, to make a documentary film for one person that costs half a million quid. I mean, it's, it's, theoretically, it should be able to do that. And I wonder what yeah. its stance is uh, regarding you and BritDoc and your. Uh, your philosophy?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've always been partnered with Channel Four because I'm ex-Channel Four, and you know, I also think it's really important that we have two public service broadcasters. I'm a big, you know, believer in, in Channel Four, but I love the BBC. I'm the BBC's biggest fan. I absolutely, you know, the, I'm so proud to live in a country where we have the BBC. And the more I travel, the prouder I get. And of course, James has gone to the BBC now, so maybe that will also um, deepen their willingness to do independent documentaries. I mean, they,
4: they, they should do more I think
2: Yeah well I was
0: just about to ask Molly because she was going at this
3: Do you think the BBC is doing enough? Well I, I've always worked for them But I had to stop when I did the Jerry Halliwell film Because she had 50% editorial control Which wasn't A problem because I always Clear the films of people Before they go out but it was thankfully A problem for the BBC who said they couldn't Take it. So I'm very out of touch with them because right. since then, because Channel Four pay more and give you massive freedom, um, I've made my last three films for them. So I don't know.
0: Because I, th- I mean, my sense of it from the outside is just that the BBC seems to hold itself to kind of the it holds itself to the standards of non-public service broadcasters, even though it doesn't have to. I don't know if you agree with I agree
2: that. Yeah. So it's kind of a bit of a waste of... I'm dying to... to know what this guy...
4: Yeah, um, sorry. Okay. okay, okay, I'm Bill Emmett. I've spent a career in print journalism at The Economist and now I've made a documentary. Uh, or rather, I've presented and financed a documentary that has been made by an Italian journalist. Um, and uh, my question... What, what this became... Well, became clear to me from this is that there's no money in it, for a start. This is a get-poor-quick scheme, essentially. Um, and it's done brilliantly Not, in Italy, it's been seen by a million people, yeah. um, and we are basically doing your scheme of raising money for educational yeah. purposes. But my question to you, and I think that's brilliant, I think that's absolutely a way to go for a certain type of film, um, What's the prospect of, of uh, making these economical in cinema
2: yeah.
4: and digital? And uh, What's your model for that? If yes. television is basically moving away from them, which it clearly is, yeah. um, what's the digital in the cinema opportunity and how are you going to... Yeah. It for the us. model
2: is to raise money from different parts of civil society, not mm-hmm. to try and make them commercially successful. I have a really fantastic. When I come home at night, I've got this beautiful framed piece of graphic work. It's a zero commercial potential, and it always <laughs> just reminds me. You know, I mean, one mile away will make absolutely. You know, it has zero commercial potential. It no, has, I can see it so, with that. So but, but, it's really about who has a vested interest in getting this kind of work made and seen, and who can become partners and investors in that yeah. work. And, and crowdfunding. I mean, Kickstarter. You guys. I mean, people know about Kickstarter, right? Yeah. I mean, It is raising millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars for independent creative work. So, I mean, it's not the entire answer yet to the um, reduction in public service broadcasting. But we we work with foundations all around the world. We present to foundations all the time and they say we don't fund media because that should be paid for by the BBC. And we say, you're going to have to fund media if you want there to be media that matters. And actually, we're seeing more and more foundations. We've had initial grants from you know, Esme Fairburn, Siegel Rousing, Oak Foundation, you know, that they had to move into this space. So, And corporates, we work with corporations where we, there's a good fit, and a clean fit between... You know, but, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing, is but trying to figure out the new model. I, but think I really there's a like, brilliant I but Michael... quick scheme. I'm going to use that in my meetings with filmmakers.
4: Quite. I mean, Michael Moore makes, makes films that are successful in, doc, in cinemas. Inside Job was brilliantly successful. Juro deems of Sushi was brilliantly successful. In America.
3: Yeah.
4: Why aren't they successful in Britain? What is it that we can do to persuade cinemas... And digital distribution to make them successful. That's my question.
3: Well, so I think it will happen slowly, won't it? We've yeah. just had this massive transition from one television documentary. I think it's, I think model,
5: yeah. uh, yeah. I think it's the shift. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've Hello. Can I? Just, I don't know if this yeah. is time, but I have a loud voice. Uh, I want to rise. I'm David Fenton. Uh, briefly, in defence of Gasland, which is. Uh, the victim of a very insidious fossil fuel industry propaganda campaign. Don't fall for that. That's a very accurate film. And Gasland 2 is coming out on HBO this summer. And HBO is thrilled with it. And it's quite a very important piece of journalism. There is, people are drinking the Kool-Aid on fracking. The wells leak. They can't be fixed. More and more of them leak over time. The methane that lit on fire, that never happened before these wells were driven, uh, drilled across the street from the houses. This is a giant propaganda backlash. Don't
3: be fooled by it. To be, to be fair, yet, though, Zoe, Zoe has, is... has to respond. Well, no, my, point, well, my, my
0: main point, because I knew that this is such contested ground, was that the American situation is, is no reason to ban it in France and Holland. The, the, the way that it looks in America is no way what it would look like in Europe. Okay. The
5: concrete meets
3: um,
2: Can I show my last clip to go out on? This is um, Dirty Wars. We had it at Sundance. It's a film about Obama's... Ex- Sorry, did you? No, no, I'm completely I was just making a About Obama's (laughs) massive extension of covert warfare and use of drones. And it's coming out in American. IFC bought it. It's going to be in 50 cities and with a big campaign um, to try and rein in the appalling behaviour of the Obama administration. And I leave you with this amazing clip. Please look out for this film. It speaks for itself, actually. It's beautiful. But you're just leaving us. You're just going. I'm just going (laughs) out And now And I'm leaving the house. And now I'm going to to the bar. (laughs) Please thank my panellists. Thank yourselves for being so animated and brilliant.
1: That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.